The lesson today is about spiritual leadership. And the theme for the year has been the race that is set before us. And we've taken that theme from Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1, where it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And as we have been mentioning this year, this is really the conclusion to chapter 11 in Hebrews, which is very well known for being this beautiful chapter about all of these men and women who have gone on before us living their individual lives by faith. Despite their circumstances and regardless of their circumstances, they found ways to put their faith in God and to live by faith. And so what chapter 12 calls them is a great cloud of witnesses in verse 1. And I think the idea is not so much that they are witnesses of us, but that they are witnesses to us. That by their examples, we consider what they did, and it's as if they are saying to us, if we have run by faith, you can run by faith too. And so the responsibility that comes to us is to run the race that is set before us. Each one of us has unique circumstances and roles and responsibilities in life. And all of that comes with instruction from God about how to do it well and how to honor Him in those roles. And so the theme for the year is we are considering different roles, different parts of the race that might be set before me or before you. And today we come to the theme of spiritual leaders. Now, you might think that this is a lesson for elders or for deacons or for preachers, and you would be right about that. Those are the kinds of roles that I primarily have in mind. But that doesn't mean that if you don't fit one of those roles that you can just tune the lesson out and think about what you're going to have for lunch later. Because there's a lot of lessons that I think would be useful for all of us in different ways. In fact, this is also a lesson that is useful for Bible class teachers, for parents, for siblings, for neighbors, for friends, anybody who might find themselves in a position to be a spiritual leader to someone else. And as you can see, there will be a lesson in July that is specifically about parenting. And so we're going to talk specifically about that in July. But some of these principles, I think, would apply to that very well also. But being in a position of spiritual leadership is a very big responsibility. Because what we do can have a very direct impact on other people's relationship with God. And we may not have always pursued that position. We may have just found ourselves in a role where we realize that people are looking to us for guidance or looking up to us for examples and leadership. But even so, there is a great responsibility because it means that we have the potential to either strengthen or weaken others spiritually. 
And so today we will look at some scriptures that will help us in this. We'll consider what God has called us to be as spiritual leaders. And the first text that I want to look at is in Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 13. Uh, It starts here in verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, this text tells us a lot about spiritual leaders, and it starts by identifying several of them in verse 11. You notice here that it talks about how Jesus gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20, Paul already mentioned a couple of those roles. He talks about there in Ephesians 2 and verse 20 that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so the picture that Paul is painting in the book of Ephesians is that the church is like a building. It's like a big structure. In fact, it's like the temple because it's where God dwells. And he says that Jesus is the cornerstone. And that would be the crucial part of the foundation. The place that everything else is built off of and built around. It is what determines what is level, what is square. That's Jesus. But then he talks about how the apostles and prophets have completed the foundation. That everything else is built on top of. And so if you compare that to what he's listing here in chapter 4 and verse 11, you've got two roles that would be inspired, the apostles and the prophets, and then you've got roles that would be uninspired, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. And so just as Jesus had promised to his apostles that the Holy Spirit would come and it would lead them, he would lead them into all the truth, and that they would be able to teach with authority, it has happened. The apostles and prophets have done that. But as the structure continues to grow and as it continues to be built up, it's being built up by men like evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. And so, you could call me an evangelist. That would be a biblical term for what I do. That word refers to someone who proclaims the gospel. Literally, it is a bringer of good news. But the next group that he lists here in verse 11 is the shepherds, or in Latin, the pastors. 
And this is a word that the New Testament uses synonymously with elders or overseers. And so a lot of people would call me a pastor today, but biblically speaking, that would be the elders, not me. And then the third word that he uses here is the word teachers, and that word may or may not refer to a third group. There's some discussion about whether he's talking about shepherds and teachers, or if it should be hyphenated, shepherd teachers. Because if we understand the roles of elders, we understand that they are primarily tasked with feeding the flock. One of the qualifications is that they be able to teach. And so maybe he's talking about teaching shepherds, or maybe he's just adding a third category, people who teach, people who instruct others about the will of God. But I think if you look at verse 11 here, you can see how these words can be thought of in a couple of different ways. They can refer to very specific offices in the church. Men who make preaching their vocation. Or men who are appointed to the office of elder because they meet the qualifications and have been put into that role. Or even people who take on a formal Bible class. You know, we've just finished up a wonderful class in Philippians. Brian took on that role, and next Danny's taking on the role to teach the next class. So we might be talking about people like that. But you can also see how these principles can be much more broadly applied. You don't have to be somebody who has made preaching your vocation to evangelize. It could be you find yourself in a position where you have the opportunity to proclaim the good news to somebody else. Whether it's your family or the people that you work with or the people you interact with in the community, you can take on the role of evangelism. Or maybe you have the opportunity to shepherd some people in your life. Or maybe you have the opportunity to teach some people about God's word. And so whether we're talking about the formal roles or the offices in verse 11, or just sort of the general principles of what these roles are meant to accomplish, verses 12 through 14 show us what it's all about. The reason why Jesus has intended for people to fill these roles is so, in verse 12, they will equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes. And so clearly, spiritual leaders are meant to help people become like Christ. When we think about the roles of elders, that's what we should think of primarily. Not that they are managers of the bank accounts, not that they are the ones who are just simply in charge of, you know, making the business-type decisions that are necessary. But people who are devoted to helping us become more like Christ. To help us grow and mature spiritually. 
And if we take on roles of spiritual leadership in our own lives, those should be the same kinds of goals that we have. To help people become rooted and grounded in the truth. To bring people to maturity so that they're not being constantly tossed to and fro and pulled from one direction or the other by whatever the latest thing they heard was or the latest video they saw on YouTube or whatever. We need stability. And that comes from Christ. And he says in verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. That's where the power is. There is power in speaking the truth. There is power in telling people about what they can count on as being real and what they can build their lives around and what they can always trust in. But he says that we need to be doing that in love. We speak the truth and we lead people by pleading with them in ways that are patient and gentle and firm. And realizing that people need to hear it over and over again. You might think about truth as being the medicine and love being like sugar. And some of you already know the quote from Mary Poppins. It tells us it's just a spoonful of sugar that makes the medicine go down. But it's often that way, isn't it? That sometimes the truth is hard to hear. Sometimes the truth is offensive. Sometimes we know that the truth is going to step on people's toes. But the way that people will be receptive to it is often when they can see that it comes from a place of love. When they can sit across the table from us and look in our eyes and just feel like they want to do the right thing because they know the sincerity of the message that they're hearing. Now, before we leave this text, I want to focus on two words in verse 11. And those two words are the words, he gave. I want us to think about that concept for a couple of minutes. Paul is saying that Jesus gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to the church. They are a gift from him. Now, if you back up to verse 7, you'll see this concept explained a little bit more. Because he says in verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And then here's where we started earlier, verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. In verse 8, Paul is citing Psalm 68 in verse 18. And he's explaining how Jesus is the one who has ascended. That means he's gone up into heaven. But in order to do that, he had to descend. He had to come down first. 
And in this whole process of Jesus doing what he did, coming down to save us and ascending back up into heaven, that he hasn't left us abandoned. Instead, he's given us gifts. And the gifts that he's given us are the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Now, do you ever think about that idea? That Jesus may have given you to someone else. I think that's a really powerful thought. That's a really powerful thought to think about, that Jesus is giving gifts to people through the spiritual leaders in their lives. And if you find yourself in a role of spiritual leadership, you might need to think about how Jesus could be giving you to someone else. It makes me think about the way Mordecai reasoned with Esther in Esther chapter 4. And in Esther 4 and verse 14, he tells Esther, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. What Mordecai was saying to Esther is that you could be the one that God has given to his people to save them. You could be the one that God wants to be a gift for them. I think that's the way that we ought to think of ourselves as spiritual leaders. And not in some kind of a prideful way, not like, oh man, I am God's gift. No, Mordecai tells Esther, if you don't do this thing, God will find another way. It's not like he's just totally dependent on you. If you fail to do what you ought to do, he'll find deliverance somewhere else. He'll, he'll use somebody else. But what an opportunity that is. What an opportunity that was for her and what an opportunity that is for us to say, God could be using me to be a gift to someone else. And so perhaps you have come to a position of leadership as God's gift. Now, if we think about that idea, I want us to take that with us over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Because in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul is describing spiritual leadership, and he's using a few different figures to describe it. And he sort of blends these a little bit. But he describes the kind of work that he and Apollos did in Corinth, like feeding or farming or building. And he talks about how, you know, we fed you and, you know, we worked like farmers and we also worked like construction workers. And it's really that third metaphor that he spends the most time on. And that's the one that I have on the screen that I want us to look at. But he picks up here in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. 
for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, there are some challenging things in this text, and I'm not under any illusion that I'll be able to fully explain all of them in this sermon. But I do want us to focus on this picture that we see and a very basic conclusion. And that is that the way that we build people will either set them up for strength or for weakness. It will either set them up for success or for failure, to endure or to collapse. And so let's walk our way through it so that we can see that. In verse 11, he says, No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anybody is going to be any kind of a spiritual leader at all, if anybody is going to bring anybody into a closer relationship with God, the only way that that begins is by laying a foundation of Jesus Christ. He is the only one that we can come to God through. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. And if you are a Christian today, it is because somebody somewhere at some point in time did that. They laid a foundation of Jesus Christ. But becoming a Christian is not the end. It's the beginning. If you have that foundation laid for your relationship with God, there's going to be a lot more teaching that comes after that. There will be instruction, there will be thoughts that are formed, there will be convictions that are made, and those will be the things that shape you as a person. And so verse 12 talks about building on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw. Now, you might notice something about those building materials. They're not all created equal. You remember the story of the three little pigs, don't you? There was one that built his house with straw, another that built his house with sticks, another who built his house out of bricks. And for a little while, all three of the little pigs had houses. You know, I'm sure that they all felt really comfortable. But something changed quickly for two of them. It's possible to build a house with lots of things, but not everything will last. And sometimes you can't really tell how strong a structure is until it's tested. Until the big bad wolf comes along and blows on the house and we see whether it falls flat or whether it stands firm. And it's not until we are tested with the storms of life, the trials of this place, that we sometimes then find out what we're really made of. We find out whether we've been built out of things that will last, or whether we've just been propped up with bad materials. And so that's why in verse 13, 
He says, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. The ultimate revelation will come on the last day. When Jesus returns and he sorts the sheep from the goats, then there will be no question about who is built for eternity and who is not. But the Bible also uses fire to refer to trials in this life. And trials can test and reveal how strong someone is spiritually. Remember, in verse 12, half of those building materials are flammable and half of them are not. Half of them are made to withstand the fire, and half of them will be consumed in it. So what's the point? Well, the point, I think, is that spiritual leaders need to be building people up with things that will last. If you or I find ourselves in a position where we can lead others, where we can build people up, we need to pay very close attention to how we're building them. Because we may be setting people up for maturity and for strength, or we might be setting them up for weakness and for failure. The wisdom of the world has its place. It's good to help people learn to be more productive, more healthy, or more educated. It's good to learn about science, it's good to learn about history. It's good to learn about philosophy. It's good to learn about literature. All of that is good for us. But none of those things can save a person's soul. Nothing but the gospel can give people eternal hope. And without that, they won't last. There's no education, there's no philosophy, there's no literature that apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ can build people for eternity. And so without it, they won't be equipped to deal with the trials and temptations of this life. And they won't be saved when this world and everything in it burns up and passes away. That's how serious this role is. Spiritual leaders are tasked with preparing people for eternity. And that's why preachers, teachers, and elders must take their jobs extremely seriously. That's why James actually goes as far as to say in James chapter 3 and verse 1, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And so when we appreciate the heavy responsibility that we have, it demands all of the effort, all of the humility, and all of the reverence that we can muster because it's the most important work in all the world. And that's not an overstatement. That's why I've known elders who have lost sleep at night agonizing about how to help people best navigate difficult situations in their lives, or how to make the wisest decisions for the church. 
That's why I've known preachers and teachers who have devoted hours and hours to carefully studying God's Word so that they can communicate it accurately and effectively. Because they realize the importance of the task that they have. And so how dare we take it lightly. I like how Paul uses himself as an example in Acts chapter 20. In Acts 20, he has an opportunity to talk with some elders who are from Ephesus. And it's after he spent some time with them. And in verse 17, it says, From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Those are good building materials. That is building people up with gold and silver and precious stones. When we give them the medicine that we know that they need, the things that we know will be good for them spiritually, it looks like this. It looks like not shrinking from declaring anything profitable. Talking about the importance of repentance and faith. And so if we skip down to verse 26, here's where he makes the application to them. He says, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. You see the sense of responsibility that Paul wants these elders to have. In verse 28, he charges them to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. God purchased these people with the death of his son. How dare you take the responsibility lightly? That's what Paul's saying. And so if these elders will care for the church the way that Paul cared for it, they will not shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God either. They will rely on God and the word of his grace to build up themselves and those who are entrusted to them. And I want us to notice this principle in leadership. That in order to lead others, we must 
first give attention to ourselves. No one wants to follow a leader who is a hypocrite. Nobody wants to listen to the preaching of somebody who doesn't practice what they preach. And so in verse 28, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. In verse 32, he says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I studied with a guy one time who was just greatly concerned about his daughter and how she was doing spiritually. And he had a lot of concerns about the things she was saying and the things that she was doing. And he was coming to me asking for advice about how he could, you know, steer her the right way. The thing about him, though, was like he had all of these problems in his own life where he wasn't really sincere about following the Lord. He had a lot of things that he let get in the way, and it was obvious stuff. And so you know what I told him was, well, the thing that you could do, the single most important thing that you could do to lead her to love God is for you to love him yourself. That's the most important quality in leaders. That if we are going to be people who lead others to love God with all the heart, all the soul, all the strength, and all the mind, there is no shortcut. We must love God that way too. And if we want to be effective, then we must be faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. One last passage. We'll finish where we started. This is what Bob read for us at the beginning. Here in 1 Peter 5, Peter writes to elders. And he says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You know what good leaders do? They lead. They don't just stand at the back with a bullhorn, you know, ordering people around. They don't just stand at the back cracking a whip. There's a reason why God calls elders shepherds and not cattle drivers. That's because shepherds lead from the front instead of driving from the back. Real leaders go out in front. They see something that needs to be done and they take the first step. They demonstrate what they want others to practice not domineering over those in their charge, but being examples to the flock. 
Peter says that this is important for elders, but it's important in whatever kinds of spiritual leadership that we might be engaged in. If our children don't see us loving the Lord and serving Him, why would we think that they would listen to what we tell them to do? If our friends or our neighbors don't see us leading them by our example, then why on earth would they care about how much Bible we know or what we do when we come together for worship? There is a race that is set before us as spiritual leaders. And ultimately, it is to help people become more like Christ. And the most effective way to do that is to become more like Christ ourselves. And so you might be an elder, or a deacon, or a preacher, or a teacher. You might find yourself in a position of official spiritual leadership. Or you might find yourself in some kind of unofficial role where you have those responsibilities. But whatever the case, we need to recognize that God has given us the opportunities we have, and that demands our utmost attention. God can make you a gift to someone else. You have the wonderful potential to build others up and make them stronger spiritually. But the only way to accomplish that is by the power of God and the word of his grace. And when others see Christ living in you, then they'll be able to see how they ought to live as well. That's the lesson this morning. I hope that it's helpful. I hope that it's encouraging. I hope that it's instructive. And I hope that as we consider the opportunities that God has given us, that we will be filled with both a sense of responsibility and a sense of ability, because we know that in him, there's nothing that we can't do. That he has never called us to do anything that he hasn't also given us the strength to carry out. But there might be somebody here this morning who finds yourself apart from Christ. And the best piece of spiritual leadership that we can give you collectively before you leave is to advise you to be buried with Christ in baptism. If you believe that he's the son of God, if you are willing to repent of your sins, if you are willing to make a commitment to live for him for the rest of your life, you can die to yourself and be raised to walk a new life. If we can help you in some way, whether it's to become a Christian or to make something right or to ask for prayers, you have the opportunity while we stand together and while we sing.